Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Health is everything. La santé est tout. Health is everything. Tessa Rosenboom studies the health effects of early development, how the diet and stress on pregnant women affect their health of their children later in life, and especially um, how famine and pandemics might impact future generations. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Rosenbaum. It's an honor to have you. It's an honor for me to be here. Thanks, well, thanks thank for you. inviting me. I know you've done extensive study of how the diets of pregnant women affect the health of their children, not just when they're children, but really across their lifespan. Um, give us an overview of your research and what lessons we should learn from it for the effective care and advice for pregnant women in both the developed and developing countries now, given that we are again in a time of real international stress. Yeah, well, we've studied uh, the consequences of being conceived um, during a very stressful period, the Dutch hunger winter, which was a five-month period of acute undernutrition during the last five months of uh, the Second World War in the western part of the Netherlands. And what we found is that babies who were um, in the womb at that time and who were actually building their brains, their hearts, their lungs, their livers, really carried the scars of war throughout their entire life course. So babies who were conceived during the famine and, and really um, um, spent the first you know, weeks um, of their intrauterine life in a very stressful environment, um, they had more cardiovascular diseases, adults, they had poor cognitive function, they participated less on the labor market, and they had increased mortality from chronic diseases such as heart disease and cancers. And to me, sorry, that really suggests that um, a good start in life uh, is incredibly important. And uh, well, it has lessons for how we manage the current pandemic, which is different from a famine, but also a very stressful period. These kids, you know, they weren't kind of up and looking around. They were, you know, sort of in this dark, quiet womb. And yet um, somehow the stress, um, the, 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 all that problem got, um, got commuted to them. Do we communicate it to them? Do we know the biology? What, how, how did this happen? Yeah, well, well, it really is literally the lack of building blocks to actually build the organs and tissues that they need for the rest of their lives. So just after fertilization, all the organs are formed and organs like the heart, for instance, have very little opportunity after birth to add new heart muscle cells, for instance. So really the heart that you're born with is the heart that you'll have to use for the rest of your life. What do we know about, you know, not just something like famine, but what do we know about how early life stress affects the um, sort of the outcome of children psychologically, physically uh, across their lifespans? The past, I think, 20, 25 years of research have really shown that um, uh, although the baby is relatively protected inside its mother's womb, it does uh, sense the outside environment and the stress of mothers um, is literally felt by babies and affects um, uh, how the genes in their bodies are expressed and how they function. And it really 
sets them up to be more susceptible to um, stress later on in life, and it sets them up for uh, increased vulnerability for chronic diseases. And that holds really both for um, exposures to stress before birth, but also exposure to stress um, early postnatally has long-term consequences, both for mental health, but also for physical health of, uh, of these young children. How, how does it work? I mean, it's just amazing that somehow this can be programmed into them so powerfully. Yeah. Well, well, if you think of um, an unborn baby uh, who floats more or less in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in fluid, um, we know that when mothers are stressed, their, their cortisol levels go up and these babies are also exposed to the um, levels of stress hormones from their mothers. Partly they're protected by the placenta, but when mothers are very stressed, the enzyme that uh, converts the stress hormone to the inactive form isn't working properly. And so these unborn babies are literally also exposed to uh, the stress hormones of the mothers. And these stress hormones make, uh, well, impact um, the expression of the genes and could actually increase uh, the numbers of stress receptors in the brain, for instance. And studies of, of uh, pregnant women who were working in New York uh, uh, during the attacks of 9-11 have shown um, that their children have different stress hormone levels, probably because their mothers were extremely stressed during pregnancy. So this has nothing to do with babies uh, being aware of, um, uh, of you know, uh, the words that parents are speaking, but, but literally feeling uh, the stress of, uh, of their mothers. Which leads us to the question of why. Why does the mother's body pass along stress hormones to her unborn child? And might this have any evolutionary or adaptive benefits? There are different theories about why this happens. And um, what one popular theory is that both in terms of shortage of food, but also in terms of increased levels of stress, it seems to make sense biologically to prepare for a world outside the womb that is challenging as well. So it makes sense biologically to have a very active stress system. Uh, so you're able to defend yourself properly and not being um, uh, attacked by predators, for instance. But it also makes sense to have a very effective metabolism. So you don't need many calories to survive. And that's actually one of the things that we found in babies conceived during the famine. They have a preference for fatty foods. And within the same diet, they uh, um, get obese more easily, just probably because their metabolism is so efficient, which made sense if um, the postnatal environment was the same as the prenatal, very uh, uh, scarce environment, but doesn't make a lot of sense when, uh, when you're born into a world of plenty. Has anybody ever looked at this question in countries where food scarcity is common? or famines are common to see whether, in fact, these things that are so detrimental in our world actually do help people survive? Well, uh, th there have been studies, for instance, of uh, uh, the floods in, in Queensland that really disrupted um, uh, healthcare. And what that study showed is that 
pregnant women who were still able to keep in contact with their midwife during pregnancy not only felt better themselves, felt less stressed than the pregnant women who were unable to contact their midwife and just had to lack any any uh, prenatal care, um, but these women who were able to keep in contact with their midwife also had better postnatal outcomes and their children um, fared better after birth. Um, and that was something that was still noticeable six months after birth. So to me, that really suggests that um, even with all the social distancing measures that are necessary and um, um, the fact that healthcare is much more of a digital uh, affair nowadays, it's really important to support pregnant women and to support young families in order to prevent themselves and their unborn and newly born babies to be stressed. And in a much broader sense, I think it's really important that governments um, uh, try to support young families and reduce the stress levels, because one of the things that we see happening globally is the increasing levels of domestic violence everywhere. And that's something that's really, really worrying me, because we know that domestic violence often starts in pregnancy. And if it starts in pregnancy, uh, it usually um, uh, or if it has already started before pregnancy, it usually worsens during pregnancy. Yeah. And we know that this doesn't only harm the woman herself, but her unborn baby as well. And um, young children who uh, experience domestic violence or witness domestic violence, um, uh, they are known to have increased risks of both physical and mental health problems across their lives. We tend to think that, you know, domestic violence is just such a com complex and, and intricate uh, problem that there's nothing we can do to solve it, actually. But there are several interventions that have proven to be effective in reducing domestic violence. One of them is the Nurse Family Partnership uh, Programme, which supports um, young parents in preparing for parenthood. And this is an international program that has been introduced in very many countries and it's been shown to reduce uh, intimate partner violence and also child abuse. Uh, and it really involves a nurse just spending time with the um, uh, mom-to-be and the young parents in uh, uh, supporting them of uh, being the best parents they can be. But a different intervention is uh, one that Mohammed Yunus, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner from Bangladesh, has developed, and it's uh, giving women microcredits. So giving women some financial independence really reduces the levels of domestic violence in their homes. So what do we know about the 1918 flu pandemic, you know, both here in the United States and worldwide? I know there's some data um, from that period to suggest that babies born during the flu pandemic were impacted by intrauterine stress and had bad outcomes. But what do we know about that? This seems especially relevant for our current time and situation, of course. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. When I saw the studies from economists, actually, who investigated the health and well-being of men and women who were conceived during the 1918 pandemic, the findings were really similar to what we found in the Dutch famine study. So men and women who'd been 
exposed to the 1918 pandemic died more of cardiovascular disease. And this wasn't due to their mothers actually having gone through the infection, but really was just being conceived at a time of the pandemic. But it didn't only affect their cardiovascular disease risk, it also reduced the numbers of years of schooling and uh, the percentage of the population uh, graduating from high school. So it really affects both health and uh, academic success in a way. You know, I, some of my work is around inflammation and mental health and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And of course I knew about the 1918, you know, Spanish flu pandemic, but I didn't really know about it. And when you think about the things that we hear about in history, we hear about World War One, we hear about World War Two, we hear about you know, I, I'm I'm amazed now in given sort of the current times how little we understood of what an amazing stressor that was. How we almost have a certain type of amnesia for yeah. these sorts of pandemic contagions. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really uh, it's really remarkable. You know, uh, my partner and I have a friend who um, sadly or unfortunately had COVID-19 in her first trimester of pregnancy. Um, she and her partner both got, you know, they didn't get horribly ill. They got mildly ill. They lost her sense of smell and taste. You know, so if you sat down with her, uh, what would you say to her? Because she's also very anxious about all this. Is it, you know, now that she's, you know, seven months, you know, into her pregnancy, is it is it too late for advice? Are there steps she can take now? Um, should she worry? What, what? How would you think about a situation like that? Yeah, um, well, luckily, I think uh, the studies so far on women who actually were infected with the virus during pregnancy, there are no indications that their children are at increased risk of poor perinatal outcomes, for instance. Um, um, so in that sense, um, there is no reason to worry that the infection itself uh, would be harmful to her baby. More and more we learn that, uh, and this holds for, for uh, going through stressful times in pregnancy, but also in terms of adverse childhood experiences. As long as you have social support, there is a lot uh, that this support can do to actually buffer uh, the effects of stress. So my advice would really be to uh, take good care and to talk to her partner or a friend or someone um, uh, about her worries, because uh, it seems that talking about uh, the anxiety rather than keeping uh, all that stress inside might actually help um, to reduce the stress levels. Well, one of the things that we've been doing in this country during the pandemic is really setting up online groups for pregnant women to talk about their experience of stress. And what I hear from them is that talking to other pregnant women um, and uh, hearing about their worries, knowing that they're not the only ones who worry about this, hearing that this is quite normal, that if something so unusual is going out on in the world, it's not unusual to become stressed. Uh, is actually helpful in, in reducing those levels of anxiety. So that's really one of the things that we're trying to do in this country to um, support um, uh, pregnant women and young parents 
during this period of social distancing. What would societies do if they had that perspective, um, which sadly many don't, but what, what are other things that would be differentially effective? Supporting future parents and young parents is incredibly important in making sure that they can give their child the best possible start in life because many studies have shown that it's really the best investments we can make also for for future health and the future economy. So uh, while keeping our social distance, making sure that there are support groups, that there are ways online, for instance, uh, where parents can reach out to each other or to caregivers or uh, support people to provide some support in these stressful times, I think is really, really important. Another thing I think is, uh, and it relates to the domestic violence problem we discussed before, is that we really need to make sure that um, uh, we try to prevent it. And if we can't prevent it, that we really make sure there is help as soon as possible. So if schools uh, or childcare centers need to close, I think they should remain open for families um, uh, that really feel that they need um, uh, that care. How do you, uh, how has it affected how you think about what you're doing? Well, it's, it's on a very practical level, it has changed uh, my work in the sense that I haven't been to the office uh, and I work from home mainly. It has changed the structure of my days in the sense that all the conferences I was going to go to uh, <laughs> were initially cancelled and are now sort of transforming into online meetings. But it also really allowed me to um, think about the relevance of the work that I'm doing. So much more than before, I've been involved in uh, uh, talking to policymakers of um well, really reminding them of the importance of protecting the youngest generation because they'll bear the scars of, of this crisis uh, um, for the longest. And they're the ones who have to, you know, rebuild our societies as they uh, open up again. Uh, so a lot more of my time and energy has really gone into advocacy and um, raising awareness for the prevention of domestic violence, for instance, in supporting uh, women in uh, increasing gender equality and in supporting families in giving their child a good start in life. And are people listening, I hope? <laughs> I have the feeling um, uh, they are, but as you said, it's it's a balancing act. I mean, uh, uh, there are so many um, uh, good causes that require extra funding or extra attention. Um, it's uh, difficult to decide what not to invest in at this time, um, uh, in a way. But um, I'm quite happy that our government is also thinking about how to protect young children and the people who care for them and really try to support them as much as possible. You know, are there, are there studies that are launching or studies afoot that would uh, prospectively begin to follow these children? Um, yes. <laughs> That's interesting that you mentioned that. I just recently published a paper, in fact, last week, 
calling uh, for different uh, scientists in different countries to collect data on the parents and the babies who were born around this time and try and see and compare the different strategies that different countries choose um, uh, and try to learn lessons uh, in what is the best strategy uh, that um, you know leaves the le least harm for uh, for this uh, next generation. Do we know from the, st the studies you did with the, the Dutch hunger winter how long we'd have to watch these children to be able to have a pretty good sense of what was going to happen in adulthood? You know, I mean, so in other words, you know, if 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 you see something by age ten, do we know from the so the mm -hmm. famine literature that that pretty strongly predicts something at age 40 or 50? Yeah, well, that, that's really uh, an important point, in fact, because if you could see um, any impacts at birth, that would obviously be very helpful in the sense that uh, you would rather soon know whether something is damaging or uh, possibly protective. But unfortunately, the Dutch famine taught us that even if children have a normal birth weight and there's nothing really that you can see based on their size at birth, they can still be negatively affected by their early life experience. So this means that you need to wait longer and you need to investigate more than just measuring the size of the child um, to see what the effects are. And that means that we probably have to uh, continue collecting information on this young generation uh, and see how they grow, how they develop, how they behave and um, measure for a few years before we will really know what the impact is on their growth and development. Man, this is so fascinating and so timely, you know, as we think about the ongoing impact of our current pandemic. Uh, hmm, any final thoughts to share? Perhaps something to end on a note of hope? One thing I wanted to add is that, I mean, there are lots of things to worry about, and this really is a stressful time, but there are some sort of positive effects that we uh, see as well. I wanted just to mention them, just, just to... Uh, yeah, so we don't <laughs> be totally downer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so one of the things that we, we tend to see internationally is that the numbers of prematurely born babies is going down during this pandemic. So that might be a positive sign, and we don't know why this is, but this really seems to be consistent across different countries that wow. far, far fewer children are born prematurely. And one other observation is something that we, at least in this country, see a lot, is because uh, people aren't allowed to go and visit uh, uh, you know, young families just after birth. We notice that in our maternity care uh, uh, facilities, um, uh, young parents have much less stressful starts. So the percentage of women who successfully breastfeeds from birth onwards is much higher than in uh, normal circumstances. And it really seems to be because of the very limited number of uh, social contacts that new parents can have, um, that this lack of uh, uh, visitors really increases the chances of successful start 
of uh, breastfeeding. So apart from all these worrying, stressful and uncertain uh, elements, there seem to be some positive elements as well. In the United States, we're spe- we especially see this. I, I kind of track on this. You know, rates of depression have just skyrocketed, especially among young adults. But I mean, mm-hmm. is anybody looking to see whether rates of postpartum depression are dropping because of this uh, sort of enforced return to maybe like a more species normative way of of you know having children and then and then you know breastfeeding and nursing and and in the you know postnatal period. Do you know, is anybody looking at that? That'd be an interesting thing to look at. That's a really interesting point. I haven't seen any of it. I know that one of my colleagues has been investigating stress levels in pregnant women and uh, uh, shortly postpartum, but I haven't seen any figures on postpartum depression, which would be really, really interesting. Yeah, that'd be an interesting study. Yeah. Dr. Roseboom, thank you so much for talking with us. And um, God, I mean, talk about a topic that is uh, just, you know, amazingly topical. Take care, um, you know, stay healthy. And, um, you know, thank you for the work you're doing. Well, thanks again for uh, inviting me and thanks for the conversation. Stay well too. Thank you. Health is everything. La salud lo es todo. Health is everything. Thank you for listening to Health is Everything. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe, share it with a friend, or rate it on Apple Podcast. You can visit us at exploringhealth.org and follow the Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health at CSHH or at Exploring Health on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Dr. Christine Whelan, along with Dr. Charles Raison, wishing you the best of health until we meet again.